My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. Haiti has continued to decline swiftly into chaos over the last two years. During that time, the Lespoitimoun Clinic has continued to see patients. Having a clinic and waiting for patients to come to you is easy enough. The problem is that the sickest of the sick, particularly children, are likely not going to just come to you. You must go out and find them. The reason they will not come to you is the very reason they're sick in the first place. Generally, a lack of maternal knowledge, extreme poverty, or lack of family support. The families that cannot pay the tap-tap fare to get to the clinic are those that struggle to pay for food. The woman who might refuse to breastfeed their child because of superstition is often the same one who will have trust issues visiting a healthcare facility. A woman who leaves a breastfeeding child home alone all day to go to the market to make a living also cannot spare a day to go to the doctor. Today, I want to talk about two children we saw in the last couple weeks. Their stories are complex, with multiple turns too numerous to fully include in this podcast. But each one speaks to the need to be proactive in caring for vulnerable patients. The first patient was a little boy. He had first been located by one of our community health workers, Louis-Jacques. Louis-Jacques lives in the little village of Boozy, but as part of his job, he walks from mountain hamlet to mountain hamlet visiting families. In the far-off village of Minson, an hour and a half walk, he had found a child. Louis-Jacques knew that the child was ill. Not only was he rail-thin in the upper body, his lower body was swollen from protein deficiency. At two and a half years, the child weighed 17 pounds and most of that was water weight from the swelling. The mother was 19 years old and inexperienced. Over the next week, he was able to coax her to bring the child to our monthly nutrition program in Boozy. The patient was seen by Mr. and Mrs. Jean Ka, our two nutrition coordinators. These two had braved the dangerous and gang-ridden roads of Haiti to make their monthly appointment with one of the clinic's drivers, Clairson. The Jean Ka's agreed with Louis-Jacques. The child was deathly ill. He would need to be transported down the mountain that day and sent to our partner hospital. The child was formally weighed and their height was taken. The John Kaz spoke with other family members to make sure they were on board with the idea of bringing the child down. Clairson and the John Kaz then took the two-hour trip to the hospital with a short visit to our clinic so that we could examine him. Fortunately, there was no violence in the streets and they were able to safely arrive. We explained to the mother that we would cover all the costs of the hospital stay and gave her a small amount of money to pay for her food. That night, the patient was safely ensconced at the hospital. His odds of living seemed to be around 70%. We were hopeful. Friday became Saturday, and then Saturday became Sunday. Late Sunday, we heard the news. The mother had told the nurses and doctors at the hospital that she needed to return home and could no longer stay at the hospital. As a caregiver always needs to be with children, This meant that the child would be taken out of care. After we were informed of this, we got on the phone with our colleagues at the facility. The child had been doing poorly. If he stayed at home, he would die within the coming weeks. And here is where sitting and waiting for patients to come to you is not enough. We mobilized our community health workers again. Louis-Jacques hiked out of the village and had a conversation with the family. The mother could not be convinced to return. He asked her why she left. She had said that she didn't have enough clothes and the money for food had run out. And this is no small thing. Mothers and fathers are required to stay with the patient 24-7 in the hospital, and they sleep on the floor. Perhaps she was afraid to return to this environment again. 
After communicating with Louis-Jacques, we sent a second community health worker out to the village. Again, you have to remember, this is a long voyage. The second community health worker had to drive two hours and then walk an hour and a half. Finally, he reached her house. He sat with her and the family. He listened to her concerns. He reassured her. And then he examined the child. The child was covered in deep sores and the skin was peeling back. This had not been the case when we had seen the child just days before. The story slowly came out. Someone, likely a local witch doctor, had placed car battery acid all over the skin in an attempt to heal the child. It had burned deep wounds that were beginning to fester. Oftentimes, traditional beliefs, if not correctly shepherded, can create a barrier for medical treatment. But it's not uncommon for a patient to seek both traditional and modern medicine. And traditional medicine is often more familiar because it is practiced by someone from the village and not from a faraway place. Either way, the woman finally agreed to return. She packed a bag with clothes, and the health worker told her that we would give her additional funds for food. Together, they started the long walk down the mountains to return to the hospital. Another of our drivers, Smyrn, was dispatched to pick up the child and the community health worker and bring them back to the hospital. Again, we were fortunate with the gangs, and the small family arrived safely at the hospital. Dr. Donald called the hospital to let the pediatrician know ahead of time that they would need to have a place for the child. As soon as the child arrived at the ER, care began. The next day, Smyrn and Donald visited the child. The child was still swollen and thin, and the wounds were continuing to look worse. He was developing septic shock despite antibiotics. He had been placed on oxygen. It was not looking good. When they went to visit the child the next day, the bed was empty. They searched out the nurses and asked them what had happened. The child had died during the night. Over the past few days, we've been discussing this case among our leaders. This has the possibility to create problems for future children. In the mountainous regions, parents are afraid to take their children to the hospital. In their mind, this is where our children go to die. I've had parents take children out of the hospital and back to their mountain village because other children in the facility are dying. Of course, we know that only the sickest of children go to the hospital, so it's not surprising that many die there. But for someone with low health literacy and concern for their child, they see that from time to time, when a child is transported from the mountain, they don't return. If we don't confront this head-on, we could have even more issues in the future. We have arranged a symbolic donation to the child's funeral. This will likely not prevent all families from fearing the hospital, but it will give our community health worker an opportunity to visit the family again and strengthen a relationship. The health worker can reiterate that we will always be here to help. It can work to ensure that the village continues to trust Les Moon. Even if they are afraid of the hospital, perhaps they will continue to trust us when we say that the hospital is necessary. The second patient will not, God willing, have a sad outcome like this. The day after the last patient was discovered, another mother was brought to the clinic by a community health worker. Her child was also sick. We quickly registered the child in our electronic medical record system and put her in the front of the line to see me. As the two of them sat down in my office, it was clear that the child was swollen, very swollen. From the feet, to the legs, to the arms and face, there was fluid oozing out into the interstitial spaces. When you held her foot, the indentation remained, like a stress ball. This was in-stage malnutrition, or as we might call it in the United States, starvation. I asked the mother how the child had gotten to this point. How long had he been swollen? The mother didn't fully know. Instead, she told me the story. The child was 13 months old, and for the last month, the child had been living with her dad. The mother used a Creole word when she referred to the dad. 
This can simply meet a hooligan, or it can refer to a specific powerful gang that operates near us. I asked her to clarify, was the dad actually in the gang? And then she said very clearly that yes, he was a gangster. Apparently, he had been out working for the gang during the day and had just let the child sit at home without food. When the mother came to find the child two days prior, the infant was in dire straits. She had brought the child home and our community health worker had found her. As usual, we went through the process to transfer the child to our partner hospital. Everything went smoothly and the mother was happy that her child would be getting the care she needed. She was sent off with a driver and settled into the ER. We received a call shortly thereafter from our colleagues at the hospital. They told us that the mother had started coughing. They had done a rapid COVID test, which was positive. After this, they did a rapid test of the child, which was also positive. What ensued was a late night back and forth to have the small family transferred to a larger hospital that could treat both malnutrition and monitor COVID. Fortunately, as of right now, nine days later, the child is reportedly doing well. She faces a long path of recovery, but in my experience, if children can live through the first week of treatment, they usually will live for the long term. Two children and two different outcomes. We have to tell both the joyful and heart-rending stories to capture life in Haiti. But neither child would have had a chance without a proactive approach. With the first child, two community health workers, two nutrition employees, two drivers, and two physicians all participated in the care of this patient. This is not typical, but it's also not particularly rare. With the second child, the survival of the child depended on the bravery of a female community health worker who sought out a patient even amid the violence of Haiti. Remember the courage that this took, considering that insecurity is always more dangerous to women. And this is what it comes down to. The sickest children in Haiti are also the ones who need the most intense accompaniment. Their parents are often inexperienced, poor, and scared. They often will not come to the hospital unless they speak with someone they trust. They may leave the hospital out of fear and need reassurance to return. And there is no easy formula to build trust. It is a thousand micro decisions showing up over and over again. It is about longevity, being in a community for years. But if we do this well, the stakes are worth the effort. Thank you for listening. Every Wednesday morning, we publish a new narrative from life here. We are simply telling stories as we've seen them in Haiti. But Haiti is a fascinating country with a rich history, and there are many Haitian voices that can tell the story of Haiti in all its facets, and we encourage you to seek them out. As we made this episode, some names may have been changed to protect confidentiality. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends or give us a rating wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about the work of Light from Light in Haiti or to get involved, visit us on the web at lightfromlight.me. Thank you and God bless.